So we're going to continue our sermon series in Surrender today, um, and, uh, and we've been pursuing this, this position or this place in our faith where we're, we're sort of letting go and letting God, right? And, and I was just thinking throughout the week about how many different songs, uh, how many different verses have pointed me to this concept of surrender as I've grown in my faith. I remember we used to sing a song in youth group, and, and one of the lyrics was, in my heart and my soul, Lord, I give you control. Uh, consume me from the inside out. Let your justice and your praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out, right? And it's this, it's this um, prayer for reform, right? That, that God, I know that I can't form these things in me, and so I'm giving you control of my inner life so that you would produce in me the very things that you desire. And that's really the heart of surrender, right? It's a heart of saying, Lord, I'm, I'm giving you control. I'm yielding myself unto you for your purposes. And uh, that is an incredible place of fruitfulness. There's a lot of words in the Bible that are synonymous with this. Jesus says, abide in me, right? So remain in me. Remain in my word and in my teaching. Uh, remain with your actions and what I'm calling you to do. These are statements of surrender. The branch does not tell the tree what to do, right? The, the, the branch does not tell the grapevine what to do, but instead it receives its orders and its strength uh, from that thing. And the same thing between us and the Lord. Uh, so today we're talking about surrendering. and We want to surrender to God's love. So when we're surrendering, sometimes we talk about surrendering something from us to God, and sometimes we talk about surrendering ourselves to God, right? <clears throat> and so today we're talking about surrendering to God's love. Uh, now, this is not natural for us. Uh, the world is a difficult place, and many people learn that life is full of pain and challenges and difficulty. Uh, as I've pastored, it's been the, the sad reality that most people I know, most people I know have tragedy and pain and difficulty in their lives that if that's all that they had would not make life worth living. Now, thankfully, that's not all that they have, but, but I know so many people who think, oh, I, I have just experienced such a difficult life and they don't share that openly, but they share it with those that they trust and they feel like they're the only ones. But when you hear all of the only ones tell you you realize that it's actually the rarity to find someone whose life doesn't testify of a deep amount of pain and hurt and difficulty. Now, the reality is, is that the world is a dangerous and difficult place, and we need to be prepared for life and to deal with life accordingly. That means that some of us learn to put up a lot of walls and barrier and armor to keep ourselves safe in the difficult world. Have you experienced this before? Where you meet someone who's got walls up, they don't want to let you in? Well, the reality is everybody has some walls up. We call them boundaries and we need to have them. But some of us have been so hurt that the walls are way out there and there's very little potential for growth and connection. Uh, this year I ran into a story about this guy who turned on his ProPresenter clicker tool. Uh, this guy whose name is Soichi Yokoi. Have you heard of Soichi Yokoi? Soichi Yokoi was assigned to an island in the Pacific around Guam during World War II. Now, World War II ended in 1945, according to my recollection. I'm not an expert historian. Can anybody verify that? Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. All right. And, uh, and Soichi Yokoi uh, did not give up the war until 1972. That's a lot of years of remaining in war when you don't have to be in war, right? So Japan surrendered, but he didn't have the ability to hear about the surrender. And nobody brought him news of the surrender. And so he and actually three other soldiers hunkered down on the island, not just for years, but for decades, staying in a state of war when they could have had peace, staying in a place of, of being embattled and digging in, literally digging caves to live in, digging cellars to keep roots in, uh, worried about finding fresh water, stealing shrimp from local shrimp farmers, right, to stay alive. And so Soichi and his buddies stayed at war long after they didn't have to any longer. They could not find a place to surrender. They could not find a way to surrender because they still thought they needed to be at war. The reality is, is that Christians can be in the same place. That even though God is love and God is producing love within us, that we somehow form a war that is not centered on God's nature, but instead on our own fears, 
our own desires, our own projections into the world. It's dangerous when we do that. It's harmful when we do that. I think of the scars that are left in America from the church forming the moral majority in the 80s. And maybe you were part of that, and I, and I don't mean to condemn, and I don't mean that it was wrong for the church to become organized and thoughtful about how it worked in America to bring about justice in our culture, but at some point in time, the moral majority stopped being a, a group that believed in functioning in a moral way and started to fight a culture war instead of standing firm against the schemes of the enemy. And so the moral majority ended up chewing up groups in America by declaring that people groups were the enemy of God instead of letting the enemy of God be the enemy of God and the people who were not of God being people that God wanted to redeem and love. And so it's very important that we understand that God is calling us to surrender and to surrender to his love. So God is calling us today to surrender because surrender to God who is love catalyzes growth in love, okay? So surrendering to God who is love catalyzes growth in love. Have you all experienced a catalyst before? You know what a catalyst is? You probably all got here because of some form of catalyst. So there's gasoline or diesel in the tank of your vehicle, unless if there's battery juice in the tank of your vehicle. And you got here today because the fuel was injected to the engine and the spark plug or the glow plug catalyzed ignition in the engine. A catalyst is something that causes a reaction. And surrendering to God causes a reaction in our souls. And that reaction is that we start to grow according to the nature of God. And the nature of God is love. Now, that's not all that God is, but he is clear and represents to us that this is a core of his nature. It's a part of who he really is. And so as we surrender to God, we're surrendering to his love. And his love starts to transform us. Now, this is a foundational idea in the New Testament. In fact, uh, this is one of these sermons that like, I had to ignore a lot of information in the Bible about. Sometimes the sermon, have you ever been in a sermon? Of course not with me, I'm sure. Where the pastor seems to stretch out the passage longer and longer. You're like, I'm pretty sure that was a 73-second sermon that was made a 45-minute sermon, right? Love is not that way. There's so much in the Bible that talks about love. It's one of the greatest themes in the New Testament. It's an often repeated word. It's a command of Christ to his people, right? This is my new commandment, that you love one another. And then every book in the New Testament talks about this love over and over again. One of my favorite passages that talks about this is this prayer that Paul records for the Ephesian church that I'd like to share with you now. It's in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 16. So if you're turning your Bible, it's Ephesians 3, and it's starting in verse 16. He says, I pray that God may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Wow, that's a pretty powerful prayer, right? That God would work from his power to strengthen you, from his strength uh, to strengthen you with power through your Inner, or in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, that's an interesting thing, because if you have faith in Christ, Christ is already dwelling inside of you, right? But Paul is praying that that would increase all the more, that Christ would be dwelling in you all the more. And then he says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know the love that surpasses knowledge. Wow, the love that surpasses knowledge. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that interesting? Paul says that there's this seed in you of love and power, and that God's going to increase that. He says you've been rooted and you've been established in love, but you don't yet fully comprehend the greatness of God's love. Any mathematicians in the room? Or perhaps people who build things? So when you take something and you take the length and the width and the depth and you multiply them together, what do you get? You get the volume. You get the volume of God's love. So Paul is praying that we would understand the full volume of God's love. Now, could Paul have just said, I want you to understand the volume of God's love. Well, he could have, 
But the problem is that God's love surpasses our ability to comprehend it. Okay? Have you ever been involved in figuring out something that's past your ability to comprehend it, but you've got to do it anyways? I mean, can you calculate the volume of the Pacific Ocean and really grasp it? I can't. I mean, I'm sure I could find a number and I could tell you how many gallons of water are in the Pacific Ocean, but do you really understand what that means? I mean, when I read that there's hundreds of thousands of gallons of water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, that means there's millions and billions of gallons of water out there. And the reality is I, I can't experience or understand billions. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Have you read the statistics of how much money a billionaire would have to spend in their lifetime in order to spend all of their wealth? It's a ridiculous amount of money that they would have to spend every day of their lives. It's an incomprehensible amount of money. God's love is greater than all of the wealth of the earth. God's love is not measured in the weight of the the globe or what exists. It's greater than that. It says the universe displays the glory of God and that glory is a glorious love. And so all of the universe declares the love of God, His goodness and His creative power. And so Paul is praying for a massive thing for us that we cannot comprehend on our own. It surpasses our knowledge. And the goal of this is so that you would be filled with the fullness of God. Wow. And then I like that he closes the prayer like this. Now to him who is able to do above, all, above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory, right? So when we ask God for an impossible thing, it's important for us to remember that God is the God of doing the impossible things, right? He's able to do the things that are beyond our imagining. So let's talk about then how do we move into this place of love? How do we move into this place of love? The reality is that for Christians, when God commands us or calls us to do something, some of us feel pressure to produce that thing, and we start to force that thing in our lives. Have you ever met somebody who's trying to force a spiritual characteristic in their life? Somebody who lacks joy, but they would like to look joyful? They look a little bit like a troll doll with a painted-on face, right? Like, this part is happy, This part is not, right? And when you speak to them, there might be sorrow or difficulty. Well, it's okay to have sorrow and difficulty in life, right? This is why the Bible has songs of lament in the Psalms. It's okay to lament before the Lord, right? The Bible says, though our sorrow may last for the night, the joy comes in the morning. There is a night of sorrow. There are times of difficulty. There are times of being broken. But God restores, right? But if we try to put on that restoration first, it really doesn't work well. It's not really a pretty picture. And sometimes we can do that with love. And we need to recognize that we are not actually the source of love. That God is the source of this love. We've talked about this before, but the love of God that's listed in the Bible is a divine love. It's agape love. It's perfect love. And we talk about it being unconditional and we have all of these things that describe it. But the reality is is that the only source for love is God. Now, I don't think any of you were alive before the time of electricity. Can we just say amen to that? None of us are that, that way. But can you imagine when really the only good source of light was the sun? How would your life change if there was only one time a day that you really had enough light to work by. Only one time a day when you could accomplish the things that you need to accomplish. How would that impact your life? You'd sleep more. Amen. Yes, yes. Naturally, we would sleep more. I think much much less sleep problems if blue screens weren't the things that were telling our minds when to be awake and when to not be awake, right? What else would change? More work in the summer. Less vacationing in the summer, huh? That would be time to get stuff done. Absolutely. Time to grow things, time to store things, time to take care of things. Absolutely. Then less work in the winter. Winter would be a time of turning down life. How would the plan for every day change? You'd have to get everything done in a short order. So would you get as much done? No. You'd have to be satisfied with getting less done, right? You couldn't produce things artificially. Hot house tomatoes? Nope. Only what you can actually grow according to the light of the sun. 
It would be very different. Some of us are like, that doesn't sound so bad. Less pressure to do things, less forced in artificial life, right? But the reality is, is that we really like pumping life up. None of us has to have a cell phone. None of us has to have screens. We, we don't have to use alarm clocks. Some of you are like, amen, right? That's why I retired. But the reality is, is that we're really good at producing artificial things that we want and calling them good enough. We can't do that with the love of God. There's only one source for agape love, and that is God. You have to go to Him to find it, and thankfully, it's part of His very nature. In 1 John 4, 8, God, John says, God is love. I love how John begins his epistle to his churches. He says, that which we have seen and heard, that which we have felt and experienced. Of these things we testify to you. He's telling you, I'm not writing this letter just because I think these are good and flowery ideas. I encountered a person who changed everything about me, John is saying, and I want to tell you what it looks like to live a life that is in harmony with him and the changes that he makes. And the theme of John's letter is love. He calls his churches to love. And not just love in idea, but to love in action. And the core of his theology is this. God is love. Think about what John experienced in Jesus. Can you just imagine that? So John lived in a culture that was extremely religious. If you had bad things in your life, it's because you were a bad person and God was punishing you. And if you had good things in your life, it's because you were a good person and God was rewarding you. John did not grow up in a rich family. He had to work hard for everything he had. He was the son of a fisherman. That means you have to go out and it's kind of the luck of the draw. Are the fish getting in the net today or not? Which meant that some days you must be good enough for God to love you and bless you with an abundant catch. But some days, some days there's nothing you can do to catch fish, which means that God is displeased with you and you've done something wrong. Now, if this is the knowledge of God that you've experienced growing up, what do you think that God is like? Who would you say that God is? God is angry. God is a punisher. God blesses and withholds as he desires. Is this true that the Lord does give and the Lord does take away? Is it true that God disciplines the children that he loves? Absolutely. But do our lives work that way in some sort of instant Jesus karma where you do something wrong and so your next day is terrible? I've met Christians who believe this. I met Christians who think, my truck didn't start today. Lord, what did I do to make you mad? The answer is nothing. You bought a Ford or a Chevy or some other brand that everybody hates, right? Like, it's not, it's not God's fault that it's your truck, right? Love you, Tom. That was just for you. We could put that one in the books. Okay. So, we often can fall into this rut where God's nature that we believe and hang on to is actually not really who God is. And that's the world that John lived in. And then one day, John encountered this guy, Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And Jesus was nothing like the God that he'd been told about. This God was near. And this God was caring and gentle. And this God was kind and welcoming. This God laughed and sang and celebrated. This God showed up to a wedding and when the wine ran out, he made more wine. This God showed up to a funeral, and when the joy ran out, he made more joy by raising a widow's son. This God came with power and goodness that was fueled by love for the people around him. You know, I think that Jesus left a trail of transformed hearts because of the love that people experienced when they encountered him. It says in the, the Last Supper scene, what is John doing with Jesus? He is reclining against Jesus' chest. Wow. He, leaning on the heart of God. God is so safe that you can lean on him, that you can rest in him. He accepted that. John was called the beloved disciple. Jesus changed, God's, Jesus changed John's concept of God fundamentally so that God went from being distant and angry to God being close and loving. And so John says, God is love. 
which means every time we read about an action that God takes, we need to understand that these actions are motivated at their core by love. So that means that when God is creating the world, why is God doing that? Love. So Jesus is speaking light, and he's speaking it in love. And he's creating boundaries between day and night, and between the waters of the sky and the waters of the ground, between the sea and the land. He's creating boundaries between types of species and kinds. God produces and creates everything in love. Not only that, it says in Psalm 139 that God forms each person in love. Our theology, our understanding of God needs to be reordered to put the love of God as the center and foundation of who we know God to be. And that starts by recognizing that He is love and recognizing that He is the source for love coming into our lives. But not only did God create in love, He went on a rescue mission in love. Jesus says in John 15, 13, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. To lay down his life for his friends. Okay, I have to confess something. As a parent, I have discovered more unlove in me than I ever knew was there. I'm sad to say that. There are times when my boys will be in the backyard or in another part of the house, and they are really messing up. They are really blowing it. Our house is filled with toys. There's lots of places to run around. There's an endless number of things to do, and they will end up fighting over a two-by-two Lego. And they'll fight not just a little bit, but like they'll say things like, I am going to kill you if you do not hand me that Lego. Now, do they mean that? But is there a measured weight in those words that is more than a father's heart would like to hear? And so my heart breaks and then I have to intervene. And sadly, when I have to intervene, I'm not always coming in a spirit of love and gentleness. I can't believe you made me come into this room for this, right? I'm thundering and I am rumbling. And it breaks my heart to walk away and realize that in that moment, I'm coming because I'm angry and annoyed and frustrated. This week as I was praying about this, God revealed some of the roots of that. And it's that my parenting is not always rooted in God's love. I pray that God would change my heart as a parent. It's hard to see my deep inadequacy for the things that God has called me to. It humbles me greatly. And then I look at Jesus. The whole world was messing up God's plan. In Romans 3 it says, there is not one righteous. No, not one. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that he created us in his image to represent him and carry forth his purposes in the world, and then we grow up and we're so into ourselves that we can't get into his plan without his help. He doesn't come into the world like an angry and annoyed Chris Garrison. He doesn't come into the world like a ticked-off Republican or a raging Democrat. He comes into the world as the God of peace and love to transform and change the world through the power of love. Jesus says this, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friend. Jesus went to war against sin and death and the devil on our behalf. And it was a war of love. It was not a battle of power. It was a war of love. Now, how can I say that? Well, do you battle an ant? Do you really fight an ant? You see an ant in your kitchen, and you go and you get your 44 Magnum out of the treasure chest of your ammunitions and guns. I'm going to take you out, son. You're in my kitchen. No, it's an ant. You have so much more power than the ant. We forget that everything in the universe is no more than an ant to God. It wasn't a flex for Jesus to die on the cross. It was an act of love. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Not only was the rescue mission started and accomplished in love, but it resulted in redemption in love. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. I love the careful wording there. 
that the Holy Spirit led Paul to. I would anticipate this sentence would transfer us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. The kingdom of light, right? That is the opposite of darkness. No, not in God's terms. He transfers us from the outer darkness, the place away from him, into the kingdom that is described and defined by love. God moves you from a place of war against the human being and war against God to a place of love for the human being and love from God. Isn't that awesome? That he accomplishes our salvation in love and forms us in love. These are good things to hold on to. How many of you remember the first moments of salvation when it dawned on you how much God loves you? Where you experienced for the first time, wow, this love is real. This love is for me. This love is intense. Man, it was beyond my comprehension, but it was just so good when I realized that this is who God is, that God to me is love. There's a a writer named Andrew Murray. As it turns out, there's a ladies' Bible study who's going to read a book by him. It's going to be a good book and a good Bible study, by the way. I'm encouraged to see the topic. He writes this in a sermon that was recorded called The Fruit of the Spirit is Love. He says, one of the old church fathers says that we cannot better understand the Trinity than as a revelation of divine love. The Father, the loving one, the fountain of love. The Son, the beloved one, the reservoir of love, in whom love was poured out. And the Spirit, the living one that united both and then overflowed into this world. The Spirit of Pentecost, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son is love. God is love. The Trinity is love. This is at the core of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity filled perfectly with perfect love for each other that is so great that it overflows into creation. It overflows into redemption at the cross. It overflows into the application of salvation in each person. It overflows into the mercy and grace that God pours out on the world every day, causing the world to thrive, even though it's in a state of sin and in rebellion against Him. Now, these are valuable lessons for us to learn. But you know, sometimes... It seems unbelievable. Uh, How many of you have seen a bad movie before? (laughs) Yeah. Have you noticed that one of the aspects of bad movies is that they don't realize that there's far too many moments when they jump the shark, when there's like seven unbelievable steps to what's about to happen? It's really sad when we see these movies because they they sort of have a promising storyline. The cover of the movie drew you in and you're watching and you're like, I don't believe this. I don't believe that. That, that doesn't work that way. The main, the main character didn't have to do that. That's a fundamental shift in the nature of this bad guy. At the beginning of the movie, he was all-powerful, and now at this point in time, he's melting in water, right? Like, it's just like, come on, this is a joke, right? Well, sometimes, for us personally, we can comprehend, and we can say, like, okay, God is love, and God is out there at love, but then we think that there's somehow an edge of God's love that we will come to. It's like we're early explorers thinking that the love of God is flat and we can sail far enough towards the edge of God's love that we will fall off into the abyss of unlovedness. But God's love is unfailing. It's not just that God is love. It's it's that God's love is unfailing. It never ends. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. This is a really significant thing. Does anybody know what happened during Jeremiah's ministry to Jerusalem? What happened to Jerusalem? Jerusalem was canceled, right? Jerusalem was destroyed. Jeremiah was the prophet that ministered to God's people right before the rebellion was so hard that their civilization was wiped out and they were assumed into pagan nations. God used nations that didn't love him to discipline his people. And in the midst of this, this is what Jeremiah calls out. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. You know what that means? That discipline wasn't the end. God had plans, and that discipline and that difficulty wasn't just going to end in death, but was going to end in renewal and ultimately in the death and resurrection of Christ for his people, right? And so there's this promise of love. See, sometimes we experience things in life and they cause us to think that God's love has ended. Right after Jerusalem was destroyed, Jeremiah wrote this book called Lamentations. Have any of you read Lamentations? Man, it's a dark and difficult book, but in the middle of it, there are these moments 
where there's a breaking forth of grace and goodness. And one of these is in Lamentations 3.22. And that says, Though the Lord's mercies, or through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. His mercies continue. His love reigns supreme. You know, this happens in the life of believers as well. Have you ever experienced a dark night of your soul so that you feel like God's love is distant and not nearby? It's far away from you. How could this be happening to me if God loves me? Or I know God's love, God loves me, but my experience in my heart, my experience in my mind is so painful that I can no longer comprehend or feel or recognize God's love. The reality is, is that because we live in a sinful world, sometimes we experience difficulty to the point that it feels like God's love is not there. But God is clear in his word. He wants us to understand that just because we're not experiencing it doesn't mean that it's gone. In Romans 8, Paul addresses the problem of suffering and he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What is this saying? These difficult life circumstances aren't meant to add up to tell you that God doesn't love you. In fact, if you stand firm and endure with through them, what you will find out is even though you feel like you're being put to death, that the sureness of God's love is real and we become more than conquerors through him who loved us. Has anybody studied or read about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a 20th century saint. He was a German He came to America to study theology, and he fell in love with the African-American church in America. He fell in love with their celebration and their joy and their livelihood. It stood against the German sternness of religion. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So have have you ever met uh, German Christians who are true to their German roots? It's a serious thing. Uh, It's serious about God, uh, serious about theology, serious about beer. Uh, All of these things are very important, and And we should make sure that we enjoy them by being serious about them, right? And so there's not a lot of celebration in church. At least it doesn't look like there is. And and so when he went to America and studied theology, he found a people who celebrated God. And and he fell in love with that. And then as Germany started to suffer and struggle, he realized that he needed to go home to his people and not stay in the comfort of America. And so he went to Germany to start churches and seminaries that taught the truth about God's word because the American church, or the, pardon me, the German church, Freudian slip there, had become compromised and no longer stood forth for the principles of justice and righteousness that they should stand forth for. And then the German state told him that he couldn't do that anymore. So he created an underground seminary. And then he felt called to oppose Hitler and he was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. But unfortunately, he and his co-conspirators were arrested, and they went to a prison camp, and they stayed in the prison camp for two long years. A few days before Germany was going to be defeated, Hitler started to clean up shop. If I'm going down, I'm taking these guys out with me. And so he started to execute political prisoners, of one of whom was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's a recorded quote, Dietrich and his cellmates are being marched out, and he says to one of his cellmates, Today, for you, this is the end. But for me, my life is just beginning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood that even though he was being put to death, in Christ, he was more than a conqueror. Even though he faced probably some of the most desperate prison conditions that humanity has ever created, right? The Nazis were not kind people. They did horrible things to their prisoners that we don't want to know or talk about that in him he recognized that there was a love of Christ that even conquered death for him. And so his confession was life even as he faced death. And then there's me. I get ticked when the battery runs out in my remote and I can't pause the Netflix show to get the popcorn out of the microwave. God, don't you love me enough to make the batteries last for one more button click? Isn't it funny that life is so easy And so we're so slow to depend on the love of God to fuel us. But isn't that our source of strength? Amen. 
Paul continues, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. His love does not fail. His love is never ending. It does not run out. It is so important for us to recognize this because the reality is is that if we think it runs out for us, we live like it runs out for our neighbors. We live like it runs out for our political opponents. We live like it runs out for Christians who have fallen into apostasy. We live like it runs out for our annoying relatives. And then we live like it runs out for the person in the mirror. God's love is never ending. And he will continue to pour it into you over and over again. So then, how do we take this love that's never ending, this love that is at the very nature of who God is, and cause it to work out in our lives? Well, the answer is surrender, because we gain love by receiving the gift of love. We gain love by receiving the gift of love. Love is a gift. It's something that God gives you. We're going to talk about this more in just a moment, but sometimes, for some reason, we become prideful and we feel like we need to earn or produce what God is going to produce in us or give to us. Remember the story of the prodigal son? That's actually the story of the prodigal God because prodigal means lavishly spending, hilariously spending, and and the the dad in that story seems to spend the most. And and the, the younger son leaves on this lavish journey, right? This lavish journey because of the gift of the father's love to him. He spends it all wildly and his life ends in despair. But do you remember the condition of the older son when the the younger son returned? How was his heart? Hard. Why was it hard? Selfishness. Pride. He felt like he earned. He deserved. He was the one to get it. He produced. What did he tell his dad? Dad, I stayed here. I worked hard. I regrew our farm. I made sure that we were okay. Where did he get all that farm from to begin with? Who was there providing it for him? Wasn't dad actually in charge the whole time? Didn't the blessing come first and the growth came from the blessing? See, sometimes as believers, we find ourselves in the place of the older son, feeling like we deserve because we've matriculated fruit by abiding in Christ. Well, he's grown the fruit, but it feels like matriculation to us. We gain love by receiving the gift of love. Galatians 5.22 starts out by saying, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Who grows the fruit of the Spirit in you? The Holy Spirit, right? It's not, it's not the fruit of your hard work. It's not the sweat of your brow. It's not if you try really hard. It doesn't happen that way. It's like a pimple. It just shows up in the morning, Right? Something that you didn't produce, it's there. The Holy Spirit is producing it in you, and it's right there on your nose for everybody to see. And to Him be the glory for it, because He's producing it. Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us, poured out. That sounds like a gift. I've, I've never been to a casino and gambled. It's okay if you have. But I've seen in some movies or I heard stories where, where people are at the slot machines, right? And sometimes when you win in the slot machine, it gives you just a few coins back. And you've probably put in you like 75 and you get four. But there's something magical about hearing those coins plink down, right? Like plink, 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 you're like winner. But then sometimes you put the money in the slot machine and you pull the lever and it's like ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. And then the lights on the top go and then it starts pouring out. And then how much pours out? It's not going to get contained in that little cup, right? Like, it's, a, it's an insane amount, at least in the films. I, I imagine it doesn't actually work that way in casinos anymore. But, but I imagine that there was like this huge outpouring and a great amount of excitement. Poured out means poured out. It, it doesn't mean sprinkled on. It doesn't mean you've been given like a tiny vial of God's love. It means that the love of God has been poured out, poured forth abundantly into your hearts. How great is the volume of God's love? What's the volume of your heart? Which is bigger? It's been poured out. God's love, God's infinite divine love has been poured out in your heart. So we know this is true, that the Spirit is producing love. We know that this is true, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts. 
But then there's this gap. There's this gap of production. Have you ever met a Christian where there seems to be a production problem with love? That, that at some point in time, the assembly line of God that is being built in their heart has stopped, and so there's no more shipping and receiving of love in their life. Uh, the factory of God's love has closed down, and they're making something else. Uh, we could call it lots of things, but they're no longer producing love. Well, why is that? Well, it's because experiencing God's love is the catalyst for his love growing in our lives. It's not that God just pours out the love. It's that he wants us to experience love. But some people, sadly, are not open to the experience of love. See, love is something that we experience relationally. It's, it's more than a feeling, but, it, but there's a genuineness that happens there. When, when love is there, there's, there's this sort of electricity that happens between people. When, when love is there, there's a, a growth that happens, and so we need to experience God's love. John says this, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We see that Jesus died for us. We see that he's seeking after us. We see what he did for us, and we love him. But then John says there's something even beyond that. He says that when we love each other, when we really love each other, then the love of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is made real. It's manifest among us. Have you experienced Jesus' love from a brother or sister in Christ? How powerful is that? I remember a long time ago now, more years than I'd like to admit, I'm at that phase of life, right, when I'm now measuring things in decades instead of moments, but it was a moment ago. I went through a very serious and dark depression. It was a difficult time, and I started to see a Christian counselor, and I shared with this counselor things like, I just feel so sad all the time. I don't feel very loved and lovable. And then the counselor looked at me, and she just said, who has loved you in your life? Who has shown you the unconditional love of Jesus? And thank God, because I was able to look at her and say, a couple of people who knew me deeply and loved me more deeply than they knew me. I, I'm not a perfect person. I'm upfront about that because I, I think that the church has far too often prevent, presented an image of being perfect when we're being perfected by a perfect Savior, Right? And so I'm clear about that, which means that sometimes it's hard for people to love me because I admit my faults openly because they're there and hiding them only makes them worse, right? And so when I make a mistake, I admit to the mistake. And sadly, when I admit to it, it probably looks worse than when they looked at it, which means that sometimes it's difficult to love me. But John and Janelle, and they loved me past my mistakes. They loved me for who I was. And my wife, she loved me past my mistakes. And there was a spark that lit up inside of me in the midst of the dark depression because all of a sudden the love of Christ was made real to me. I wonder how much our depression, how much our sorrow and our anxiety comes because we're not experiencing the love of Christ. We're experiencing the pressures of the world. We're experiencing the sorrow of our sin. We're experiencing the lack of experiential knowledge of God's love. When Paul prays, that we would grasp, we would grasp what is the volume of God's love, the length, the height, the, the depth of God's love. That term grasp is a significant term. It's not mentally grasp. It's not comprehend it in your mind. It's this taking hold of God's love. It's grabbing hold of God's love. If there was a person here and I was doing this, what would it look like I'm doing? I'm hugging. I'm holding on to God's love so that it's coming close. I'm grabbing a hold of it and it's coming near. It's not just something that I understand is out there. It's something that I'm experiencing close to my life. That's how you are meant to get to know God's love. I love that there are so many examples of this in the Bible. The story of Zacchaeus found in Luke 19, 1-10. What was Zacchaeus' job? Tax collector. Do you know how they got to be tax collectors then? I find this fascinating. They bid on it. The Roman government would open up for bid every year the job of being a tax collector. And what you bid was what you thought that you could pay them. Okay? So these people were professional entrepreneurs. And their job was to take money from their compatriots to give it to their enemies. The Romans who were dominating them. Who were viciously ruling over them. 
How popular was Zacchaeus in Jericho? He was not a friend that you would want to know. Jesus came into Jericho. It was the spring. It was fragrant. The artichokes were blooming. Their flowers were there, blazing with the glory of God. And God the Son is walking into town, and there's a massive processional. And it says that the crowds were gathering to see Jesus, but there was something hanging on one of the trees that was not so beautiful. A wee little sinner named Zacchaeus, a betrayer of his whole town, an enemy of God's people. And Jesus, walking through town, did what? He looked up at Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, you rotten son of a gun. You have wrecked this town and God hates you. What the heck are you doing in that tree, you moron? No, why not? Because God is love. Because Jesus is love. What does he do? Zacchaeus, get down from that tree. Everybody thought Zacchaeus had had it. Man, Jesus ripped into Herod and the Pharisees and the hypocrites, and now the tax collectors were going to get it. Not today. I'm coming to your house today, Zacchaeus. I'm going to dine with you. What do you think that was like in Zacchaeus' home? I don't know. There's no descriptor, but there is a result. The end of the dinner, what does Zacchaeus proclaim in front of all of his guests? Lord, I will restore. I will repay. Zacchaeus enters into repentance. God says in Romans that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. What did Zacchaeus encounter? A God who is love. A God that let you lean on his shoulder. A God of compassion and care that restores. How about Peter? John 21. Remember what Peter did as Jesus was dying? betrayed, denied, with curses. Peter wanted everybody to know that he wasn't about Jesus, so he went back to sounding like a fisherman again. And he cursed people out to show them that he was not one of those weird Jesus followers. He felt like he broke his Savior's heart. In John 21, the resurrected Christ goes and hangs out by the side of the Sea of Galilee while his once close disciples who are now scattered are fishing on the lake. By the way, there's this bit of love in that story because it says that Peter wanted to go fishing. So it says that Thomas, who we call the doubter, right, who's actually the explorer, and another disciple, John, go out onto the water with him. Isn't that cool? His friends didn't abandon him, even when he felt like he should be abandoned. And Jesus is waiting there, and they're coming back in, and he calls out to them. He says, friends, how was the catch today? And they said, it was terrible. God is mad at us, right? That's probably what's being confessed in their hearts. Peter here ruined our fishing business by saying he did not know Jesus. Now he's not a disciple and he's not even a good fisherman. And then Jesus says, let your nets down one more time. And what happens? Nets full of fish. Nets full of... Who fills the nets so full of fish that you can't bring it in? Jesus. Can you imagine what's going on in Peter's heart in this moment? There must be joy but also fear and a great deal of shame and sorrow. And Jesus eats with them. He eats the fish with them. He eats bread with them by the fire. And then he draws near to Peter. And what does he say? Peter, do you love me? Take care of my flock. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? That's kindness. That's love from Jesus, and it restores Peter. It does something in his heart. It changes him so that he'll again wait on Jesus. But not just Peter. Paul, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and the life I live in this body, I no longer live for me, but I live for my Savior, the Son of God, who was crucified for me because he loves me. He says, I live now because of love. I live because of the love of Christ. Who else is an example? You? Have you experienced the love of God? Has it changed you? Has it overtaken your heart? Do you remember those moments in your life when the love of God made you alive, transformed you? See, you, if you put your faith in Christ, you are an example of the love of God transforming someone. He has poured his love forth into your heart, but you need to experience it. So if you're not experiencing God's love, what are you going to do? 
What should your response be today if you're like, okay, God is love. God's love is intending. I have to experience God's love, but my love factory is shut down. What do you need to do? You need to surrender the factory. God, the manager, went crazy over here. We don't know what he did, but we're firing him, and we're bringing in new management. You, I'd like you to manage my heart today, Lord. I want to surrender my heart to you. I need to experience your love. I need to know your love. I need to grasp your love. You have poured your love into my life. You have given your son for me. You won't withhold anything from me. Will you reinvigorate my life with your love? I surrender myself to you today to increase your love in my life. See, love increases as we surrender to the love of God. So if we're going to be a church that's marked by God's love, and does God want us to be a church that's marked by God's love? Yes, He does. What do we need to do as a church to have love be revived in our midst? We have to surrender. We have to surrender to God's love overtaking our hearts. We can't produce it in ourselves. Only He can produce it. And so we need to seek the one who can produce it. And we need to seek Him diligently and faithfully because we can't surrender today to have love on Wednesday. If we're going to have love on Wednesday, when do we need to surrender to have love? Wednesday. And if we didn't have love yesterday, is it because we didn't work hard enough? No, it's because we weren't in a state of surrender. The manager of your life decided that it, he was going to produce or she was going to produce something aside from the love of God. And so you've got to fire that factory operator and you've got to hire a new one. The good news is, is he's already paid the price. He comes to you for free. All you have to do is let him in. Let's take a moment right now as the worship team comes up and surrender to the love of Christ so that love would grow in our midst. And Father, we thank you that you poured your love into the world through Jesus. And Father, sometimes I just love to imagine the stories of Jesus walking on this earth, the kindness and love that he poured out. And Father, I also admit that sometimes I doubt that you are as loving as you say you are. And sometimes I'm not as loving as you are. In fact, often. And Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have not been filled with your love, that our motivation has been something else, something from us, our, our pride, our fear, our shame, anything but your love, Father. We pray that you would be overtaking us in your love and with your love. We surrender to you. We give you control. Holy Spirit, only you can produce the love in us that we need to experience. And so we pray that you would pour yourself out on us again this day. We pray that you would help us to abide, to remain surrendered to the Son of love, to the Father who is love, to the Spirit who is love, and that you would continue to produce the fruit of love in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.